Hello and welcome to Bingeworthy, a podcast dedicated to telling you which of the many dozens of streaming shows that are being thrown at you each week and month are worth your time and attention. Hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo, and today I get to talk to you about yet another Marvel Studios project that just finished its run on Disney+. Plus. That's Secret Invasion. The show follows Nick Fury, of course, played by Samuel L. Jackson, as he returns to Earth in order to head off and expose a radical Skrull faction from rising up and taking over the world. The show also stars Amelia Clark, Kingsley Benadir, uh, Don Cheadle, Olivia Coleman, Martin Freeman, Ben Mendelsohn, and much, much more. Joining me to discuss the series is director of all six episodes, Mr. Ali Salim. The show has been quite the topic of debate and derision among fans. Say what you will about the show, Salim has a really unique status amongst Marvel Disney Plus directors in that he's one of only, I believe, two directors to take on all episodes of the show that they're hired for. So the rest of the shows have all been kind of at least split between two directors or more. So he does have a unique kind of perspective on the show in that he's overseen the whole thing. He was also very kind and generous with his time. During the interview, we talk about how he came to the show, how he became the only director of the show, despite that not really being the original plan, the many deaths and fan theories and so much more that have come out of uh, Secret Invasion. But before we get to my chat with Ali Salim, I've got to tell you that Bingeworthy is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes the Playlist Podcast, the Discourse, Templo Talk, Amiens Podcast, Deep Focus, and more. We can be heard on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Follow, like, subscribe, and drop us a rating on any of those as we greatly appreciate it. Or just head on over to theplaylist.net for film and TV news, interviews, reviews, and more. As a reminder to our listeners, Secret Invasion can be streamed in its entirety on Disney+, Plus, or you can try the first three episodes on Hulu. Okay, here's my chat with director of Marvel's Secret Invasion, Ali Salim. Yeah, so I guess let's just jump into the Secret Invasion of it all. Thanks so much for taking the time. Congrats on making it this far. The series finale has aired. How does it feel to be on this side of the journey? Well, I would like to complete your sentence. Congrats on making it this far alive. Uh, it was 28, <laughs> 28 months of seven-day weeks. It was really a challenge to stand up some days. So I'm really thrilled to be alive, and I'm thrilled that the show is out there in the world and uh, loved by many, which is great. And um, so, yeah, it just, you know, it's like a, in a way, I guess it's like a birth. I've never had the privilege of birthing. I watched my wife do it three times, but um, it's like that kind of thing where you're just, you're just in it and you just don't have any idea until it comes out. And then the dialogue with the audience begins and it's been good. Yeah. So let's backtrack a bit with your, your history of like, just just with Marvel and superheroes in general, did you grow up like a comic book fan? Were you reading the comics or you're a more recent convert to kind of like the MCU? Um, I was an Archie guy growing up. Nice. Uh, I think I, I liked Veronica um, in the Archie comic books and I never really had a sci-fi thing going when I was a superhero thing going when I was a kid. I My kids were at the right age when Iron Man came out and I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I was so taken with the perfection of that film that it brought me into the Marvel Universe. And I can't say that I am entirely a convert, but I have great admiration and I go back often whenever. Like, I would never go alone, 
But when I have one of my kids who can explain it to me, I am the first one in line to go spend time with them. So I've sort of come to it that way. A little bit like I came to baseball. You know, I didn't grow up playing baseball and my sons taught me about it as they were growing up. And ultimately I coached and became quite an aficionado. And I think through my kids, I've learned to love Marvel in the same way. Yeah, and I'm sure that it was a big deal around the house when you came home and said, hey, guess who's directing Secret Invasion? Yeah, I mean, my kids are old enough that I had to call them. They weren't at home <laughs> when, I, uh, when I found out. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been a big deal. People are amazed by the fact that the old dad who made Sweetland is now directing Marvel uh, with, you know, blowing shit up and people flying through the air and all that kind of stuff. And the cast, I think, really impressed people, too. It's an amazing cast for any director to be able to work with on any project. So I felt really uh, fortunate. And my kids are old enough that they can be impressed by that, you know. So when you joined, where were they at in the creative process? Did Kyle have a script together? Was it just an idea? Did Kevin kind of just approach you? How, how did you get involved here? We had the pilot, for sure. And he had a writer's room going, and he had... Uh, at least worked up most of it. I didn't get to read the scripts for four, five, and six until later in the process. I'd already been prepping. You know, I had a lot of conversations with Kyle and a lot of conversations with Kevin Feige and a lot of conversations with the original executive on the project. And then Jonathan Schwartz came on, who has been Kevin Feige's right-hand man for a long time. And, and he ended up producing the show. And we had a lot of conversations. So it's an interesting process at Marvel in that the scripts really are a blueprint uh, and not like some other shows I work on, they are more than a blueprint, right? It is kind of etched in stone and you, you know, you open up your directorial toolbox and you make them come to life in ways that only a director can. But um, this one, you know, the way Marvel works, it's very organic and very much uh, WIP, work in progress, until it's not. And so, uh, you know, I was involved in the writer's room and I was involved in creative discussions about how the show would end. And um, I think that's the beauty of, because I consider myself a storyteller more than a director. And I think that's the beauty of being in a process like that and being able to direct all six episodes where you are part of the whole storytelling thing and not just like, I hope this fits into your story, which is what it's like doing um, one episode of something, you know? So it really being a part of the team that created the whole story and told the whole story. And I also, not that we're on the subject of directing all six episodes right now, but I also think that that's uh, better for actors. I think they, you know, they build up trust and they just feel like, okay, I know what tomorrow's going to be like and I'm not going to be surprised. Whether they like me or not, they've built up some sense of consistency, right? Right. So when you came on, was it instantly like, we want you for all six? Or because I know I've interviewed a bunch of different directors that have worked on these Marvel Disney Plus series. And a lot of times it's multiple people like taking on like one and six and then three, four, five and, you know, that kind of thing. So how did this become like, we just want one director for this? Well, when I came on, there were two of us. I was going to do four, five, six, and my friend Tom Bazooka was going to do one, two, three. And then we pre he and I prepped for a while, but, but then we got into probably scheduling constraints for him or something, because I think the show got delayed a couple times, and, and he had to depart for 
he worked on uh, Fargo, this season of Fargo. So he had to depart for that. And it was great for me. I think maybe a little bit ill-timed. His departure was a little ill-timed for Marvel. And so I was, you know, part of the scramble to to fill those episodes. But I think ultimately, like I said, it, it worked out well for me. And I think it worked out well for the actors. Uh, no complaints from Marvel. So I think they're happy with having one director tell that whole story. And when it does come to that whole story, did they have maybe story points that you needed to hit? Was there like, this is how the arc's going to go? Or was it just like, here's the sandbox. You and Kyle build the sandcastle here. Yeah, I mean, it's very much Kyle's creation. And I think Kyle knew where it was going to start and where it was going to end. And as the script started coming out, you know, like I said, it's usually in television, my job is to say, okay, how am I going to get this done and make it the best it can be given physical constraints or budgetary constraints or whatever. But in this situation, it was, you know, the conversations were, oh, that's a good way to end the story. Could it maybe be a little more of this or a little more of that? So it felt like the conversations all along the way were less about production nuts and bolts and more about storytelling, which again is what I love most. If you watch the show and you see, you know, the explosions and the fights and the presidential ambush and the super scroll fight at the end, there are plenty of production nuts and bolts that had to be addressed simultaneously. So, uh, You mentioned the cast before. That's what I was going to jump into because it's like a murderer's row of talent. Like you got Samuel Jackson, Olivia Coleman, Ben Mendelsohn, Amelia Clark, Martin Freeman, John, Don Cheadle, Ken Kingsley's there, Colby's there, Dermot's there. It's just like, holy cow. Uh, I know you're a professional with years of experience, but I feel like looking at that cast might be intimidating just for anybody. So did it take you a minute to kind of shake that off or were you just like, eyes on the prize here, let's just go? Oh, interesting. I Like, I don't know that it's intimidating. There's something, there's some feeling, you know, excitement is is yeah. the initial part of it. You know, figuring out, trying to find a way to learn what each of those actors needs from me, what their style is. That can be a little bit daunting, but they were all great. We, we met one-on-one. -on -one. We had, you know, they interviewed me. I got a chance to ask them, you know, how do you like to prep? How do you like to talk about it? Do you like to rehearse? Do you like a lot of takes, which is very difficult in television, or do you not like a lot of takes? And, um, and that helps a lot too. But I think, you know, somewhere along the way working, I've never worked with this kind of cast, obviously, but I've worked with great, great actors like Gabriel Byrne and Deborah Winger and Irfan Khan and Jeff Daniels in The Looming Tower. And, you know, somewhere along the way, I realized my fanboy, I want an autograph from you doesn't really help <laughs> in that situation. And just being prepared and knowing the story. Uh, and then if I do a good job, I always get the autograph. So yeah, I, I find that, you know, being intimidated doesn't really help me do my job and just being prepared does. Yeah. So I guess let's throw down a spoiler warning here. Cause I do want to get into some of the things that happened throughout the series. There are some significant deaths on the show. So I do kind of want to touch on those. Starting with episode one, the beloved Maria Hill goes down at the hands of Gravik. A lot of fans were understandably saddened by this. Many were hoping that she was like a scroll Maria Hill all along and she'd come back in the final episode. How much of a debate was there around Maria, Maria Hill's death 
And was there ever any, like, maybe we can bring her back kind of conversation? Oh, if there was any debate, it happened before I showed up. And it was, you know, that was that was the big turn at the end of episode one. And um, my job was to make it emotional and truthful and an appropriate goodbye to her. I don't know how the conversation began. And uh, I'm sure that there will be ongoing conversations about bringing her back, which... You know, this story takes place in 2023. If they make a movie that takes place in 2021, she'll be there, of course. But I don't know. I'm not I'm not part of those conversations. But I can say that my my greatest relief or satisfaction in killing Maria Hill is that I did not. I So far, I've not had any death threats levied against me, So, um, which I actually worried about when I first read the script. I was like, oh, she is so beloved. This could be trouble. Yeah, the one that almost got me there was the Ben Mendelsohn and all, because he's such a great actor, and you don't want, you don't want to see him leave this universe. Like Talos, there's so much like you could have done, but obviously, you know, you have to make these characters and the stakes mean something. So, talk about the journey here about why you and the team kind of thought that was the end of the line for Talos. Again, uh, I think it's a really good story point. I think it's the story that we're telling about Nick Fury and his sense of loss and the stakes that drive him, motivate him towards the ending of the story and beyond. So again, being a storyteller, my mind goes to what is best for the story. And it was, you know, again, it wasn't my idea. It was there on the page, uh, something that they had discussed in advance. And who knows why, right? (laughs) Who knows? Like there could be contractual reasons that that conversation started. I I don't know. I have no idea. But when you read it, I realize it is a really good story point for the midpoint of this of this arc. Yeah, that I mean, obviously, it helps Gaia come into her own. She has to become her own kind of person and and whatnot, or her own (laughs) scroll. But another thing that, you know, fans have really taken to which I did not see coming was the roadie of it all. Like, some fans are obsessed with finding out when he was turned into a scroll. The finale kind of hints that, you know, since he's disabled when he wakes up, it's sometime after Civil War when he got scrolled, I guess you would say. When when do you think he got taken? Do you have a, a, a theory as to when he got taken? I think then. I think Civil War when he was in the hospital. But I don't think it's definitive. I think it's a great opportunity for fans to go back and unpack the roadie scroll of it all, revisiting all the roadie moments in the MCU. <laughs> and I think that's more fun than my saying 10 years or 11 yeah, exactly. and a half years, right? It's just more fun to go back and revisit it. Uh, if he was a scroll, then it means that he did not attend Tony Stark's funeral, which I guess could be heartbreaking when you watch that scene yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But the, the fun thing is, is you get Don playing like this swaggering villain. How excited was he to to jump into something like that? It's so good because it's so nuanced and it is, you know, hiding the ball in a really fun and complete way. There's nobody has any sense that we're hiding the ball. And I think Don is really, really great. He's such a specific, logical actor and he talks, asks so many questions about the logic of it all. And we would have conversations I mean not debates because his ideas are so strong but we would have conversations about would Rhodey as a scroll 
reach for the door handle or would he have the instinct to let his aide open the door for him? Like little, <laughs> little clues like that. And it was fun to explore that way with Don because he was so specific about knowing that he was a Skrull, knowing that he was playing Rhodey, but could that ever be complete? Yeah. I will miss seeing Don like scroll Rhodey basically because he is so great at it. But the scrolls of it all, like it really starts to make people wonder like who else is out there? Who else is who they are pretending to be? Who are the major characters, you know, that, that might be scrolls out there that might still be out there scrolling it up. Did you guys have any conversations as far as like, maybe we are going to use some other major characters and then it just never happened or do you know certain characters are that may not have been announced yet? I think the door is open for that. I don't know that, you know, of course we had conversations all along the way about, could this person be in the pod room? Could that person, could, should we do that? Should we try this? It all goes into a much bigger um, spider web that only exists in Kevin Feige's brain. So, you know, where this could go or or not go, it's really up to him in the future. And I... I really tried to focus on the story that is contained within these four walls of these six episodes and and just stay clear about that. But I'm sure that they have left the door open for, you know, and my, my poor wife watches the, the six episodes and she thinks everybody's a scroll or nobody's a scroll and she gets herself all knotted up with that. So I think that's good. I think it's good to think that anybody could be a scroll. For sure. One of the more prominent scrolls, Amelia Clark's Gaia, had one hell of a journey in this. She's definitely different than her comics counterpart, which I'm all on board for, but she's suddenly like one of the most dangerous and powerful beings in the MCU by the end of this, because she's basically everybody. So what do you hope for Gaia moving forward and continuing, you know, her story in a certain way? Did you guys have any conversations or thoughts on that? I mean, not really. Again, I, I hate to give you the same answer, which is I stay focused on on these six episodes contained within these four walls and that the future of where this could go really exists in Kevin Feige's brain. But I do think that scene between Amelia Clark and Olivia Coleman at the end of episode six is... It's both an interesting launch for something really special and strong between these two very strong women and very strong actors. And in some ways, it's also a really lovely resolution to everything we're talking about in this series, the theme of other and how do you reconcile with other in, in whatever ways. And, you know, Nick Fury reconciles with the other in himself and the other in his marriage by kissing uh, Vara at the end. And Olivia Coleman, uh, Sonia, says to Gaia, yeah, let's leave all that emotion out of it and just do what's best for both our people. And I think that's another kind of great resolution. And if they never show up in the MCU again, I'm satisfied. And if they do, I think that scene was a great launch for them. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting launch pad. When it comes to, you know, the, the big fight scene at the end between her and Gravik, were there, how much was talked about when it comes to what powers should they use? Should they have like a learning curve? What's like the, the, the powers of it all, like conversation that you guys had? It basically, uh, you know, Kevin's directive was it's all fair game. And I think that um, that's nicely communicated in 
the moment where Gravik takes the vial from Fury, puts it in the computer for analysis, and we see all the names scrolling up, and it, it gets the fans salivating. Um, <laughs> and then I think it was more a function of choreography and a little bit like uh, rumbling under there is like a game of paper, scissors, rock, right? If Gravik pulls out a rock, then Guy is going to pull out a paper. And, you know, she's supposed to be more calculating in that and responding to what is kind of surging out of him. She's being a little more strategic. Um, you know, we storyboarded it out. We, we talked about what superpower could beat what other superpower, what would be a great defense against what superpower. And then... It changes a little when you go into stunts and you start um, working that out because there's just a choreography to it that has to flow for the two actors. And then the same thing happens in visual effects where they would draw the progression that we had created and shot, but it wasn't as elegant or as fluid as we thought we had hoped it would be. So we would alter something and then it would affect the story and it would retell the paper, scissors, rock of it all. But Ultimately, I think it looks more elegant the way it ended up. For the Nick Fury of it all, I mean, this is his journey. He started from a very disconnected place from where he was, Avengers-wise, from his wife. He's just very closed off. And by the end, you know, like you said, he's he's reconciled to a point, uh, they're, or they're certainly on their way to it. But what do you want people to take away from Nick's journey in the in the show overall? Yeah, I think... You know, there were very interesting conversations with Sam about, you know, Nick disappeared in the blip, which is very disorienting in a way that he and I were agreed that was like the pandemic for a lot of us, you know, just sort of completely disconnected from everything he knew and not sure why or how. He returned. He, he'd sort of lost his confidence, lost his mojo, and it sent him back up into space for a couple of years. So he's been really disconnected. And... Unlike the Nick Fury of the comic books, he did not take the serum that would let him live forever. So he is aging. And, you know, Sam is aging too. And those were interesting conversations about a guy who maybe lost his step, lost his sense of purpose, lost some of his confidence. And I think these six episodes help him regain it, but not in that way of, oh, it's the old Nick Fury. I think when he puts that eye patch on, it's a nod to... Yeah, this is the old Nick Fury, but it's a new Nick Fury. It's a new Nick Fury who's older and wiser and gone through a couple of knocks and returned. And I think it allows him to become anything he wants to become or anything Kevin Feige wants him to become <laughs> in the MCU now because he's a new man. He's a new man with a different kind of mojo and a different kind of stride and a different confidence. So uh, I'm excited. I hope people take away... You know, that, oh, where is Nick going to go from here? Or Nick could go anywhere from here. And um, I hope the MCU finds it because, yeah, (laughs) exactly. I mean, he's already in the Marvels. But I think there's just a whole new life for him now as an interesting character. Did the Marvels affect where you guys were going at all? Or was it just like that was already taken care of by the time you guys started down this road? (laughs) The only conversation I had was we just need Nick to go up at the end. (laughs) So... That was it. Just make him go up. However he gets up, make him go up. Okay. If you could pick, like you got, I know you're playing in the Marvel sandbox. If you could pick any, you know, characters that they have available, if you're, if they're like, yeah, you want to do something else, what would you, what would you think you'd want to pick out? If I were so lucky to receive that call, I would say 
let's call Olivia Coleman and Amelia Clark. I just think there's a really strong story in that. You know, is that Secret Invasion season two? Is that something unto itself? But I just think those two incredible actors and those two incredible characters could really take us somewhere. Possibly a, a Kree Skrull War, you know, another one of those kind of things. But who who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Again, congratulations on Secret Invasion. For our listeners, all episodes are up streaming on Disney+, and I believe Hulu as well. Yeah, so thank you for doing this. I appreciate you doing it. Thank you. 